This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm going to open you up to a phenomenal person, Dr. Andrew Hargadon. I'm going to read this because the first time I read this impressive resume, I put it down. I picked it back up. I said, all that can't be true. <laughs> and then I read it the second time, and it is very true. Um, so Dr. Hargadon, he is the professor of technology management at the Charles J. Sordaquist Chair in Entrepreneurship at UC Davis Graduate School of Management. He has written extensively on innovation and entrepreneurship. He is the author of two books, including the most recent book called Sustainable Innovation, Building Your Company's Capacity to Change the World. He received his bachelor's, his master's, and his PhD from Stanford University. Prior to his academic appointment, Dr. Hargadon worked as the product designer for Apple Computer and taught the product design program at Stanford University. Now, I read his resume twice because I, uh, I wish he would accept me as a student in one of his design classes. <laughs> and this is really my best way to butter him up. So hopefully, I can say I'll be a future student of Dr. Hargadon. Please, welcome. Thank you very much. Well, that was embarrassing. <laughs> I like to keep my intros to like one or two sentences so we don't go there. Um, anyway, this is great. Thanks, Todd, for the, the wonderful introduction and for the opportunity to be here. Uh, I, I really did jump at the chance because uh, my wife is here somewhere. She's a primary care physician who's now uh, made sort of a, a, a midlife shift to palliative care. And one of the things that I've gotten to see over the last few years, yeah, it's a front row seat on some of the neediest patients and some of the most caring uh, healthcare providers uh, out there. But I've also gotten to see just the, the sheer amount of change in healthcare over the years and, and how important it is and how, how important and how it, it, that importance is increasing every year as we learn more about the technologies and about the diseases and about the patients and about this, the payments, the systems that, that cover all of that. Um, so anyway, it, so it's just it's great to be here and to, to, to help support you guys in what you do and to recognize um, what a great opportunity this entire field uh, has in front of it. And so I'm looking forward to talking more about that in the panel. Right now, uh, I, have to, I have to jump in because I have a lot of topic and a very little time. And I, you know, sort of, I was told to, to talk about innovation, which is really simple, really. If I, you know, if I could give you the secret, I would, but I'm not allowed to. So, so I'm going to uh, just bounce around the edges of it for a while. Um, apologies to those of you who are my former students. You're going to see this again. If, uh, if all the studies are correct, you're going to retain 30% of it again this time. <laughs> so that'll mean about 50% so far. Um, I appreciate that. What I want to focus on today is talking to you not about having ideas, but about getting ideas into innovation, turning those ideas into something that is real, that is useful, uh, and that is impactful to the world. Uh, and so the way to start that out is simply by asking, what does it take to turn ideas into innovation? We don't spend nearly enough time talking about that. We usually tend to talk a lot about what it, you know, what it takes to have a good idea, because that's really fun. 
And then we talk a lot about the kinds of disruptions that follow from that, because that's really fun, or at least scary enough to, uh, to pay attention to. So what I want to talk about now, though, is what it takes to turn an idea into an innovation. And the way I'm going to talk about that is to tell you guys about the best idea in the world. And then I'm going to tell you what it took to turn that idea into an innovation. And then I'm going to remind you that if the best idea in the world took that much effort to turn into an innovation, then we all have to up our game if we want to make innovation happen. All right? So here's my nomination for the best idea in the world. And fortunately, it actually happens to be in healthcare. Uh, if anybody recognizes this, this is a mold. There we go. We started it out, right? Everybody knows the answer to this, hopefully. This is penicillin. This is the penicillin mold. And it changed the world. The reason it changed the world is because prior to penicillin, the medicine, the leading, five of the, of the ten leading causes of death were bacterial infections of one kind or another. Uh, and these were terrible. These actually were not the kinds of things that we experience today. This was, you would come down with a, you know, an abscess, a, a scratch, something that would get infected, and your prognosis was essentially, if, if it became septic, you had about a four- to eight-week uh, 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 life sentence. And the best that most doctors and hospitals could do was simply comfort you and hope that by, by giving you comfort, your body would recover from this infection. If not, and worst case, if you were young, you would last longer. It would take you four to six to eight weeks to pass away. And it was a horrific thing, and doctors were miserable about it. And then along came penicillin. And penicillin eradicated all of those bacterial deaths. In fact, I was giving this talk at a retirement center once, which was such an enormously uh, valuable experience for me, because after I gave this talk, a doctor came up to me afterwards. He was 96. And he proceeded to tell me, now, at 96, I hope I remember my daughter's name. You know, <laughs> he proceeded to tell me the details of the day penicillin came into his hospital. This is, you know, like I said, this was in the early 1940s when that happened. And he remembered exactly what happened. He remembered the patient they gave it to. It was a 17-year-old girl with low bar pneumonia, with a, you know, with a bacterial pneumonia, who had a 104-degree fever. She was lapsing in and out of consciousness. The next steps for her would be to a coma. And because she was so young and so healthy, probably another three to four weeks before she would pass away. So they decided to give her the penicillin that, they arri- that, that had arrived in the hospital. Uh, within two days, she was awake and alert. Her fever had dropped. Within four days, they discharged her. Now, we will not experience anything like that. A four- to six-week diagnosis, and you know, that's stage four of anything, and then suddenly we're healthy and, and sent home. But penicillin did that, and, and by records, by the late 1940s, it did that for 40% of all doctor visits. In other words, it came in and changed the, the practice of medicine. So that's why I think it's a great idea, right? That is, that'll be my story. Now, how did this come about? It came about by the popular story because this man, Alexander Fleming, was culturing the bacteria, Staphylococci bacteria, in petri dishes. And one day he noticed that a bacteria had, had landed, a mold had landed into his, his experiments. And around that mold, the bacteria wasn't growing. And as the story goes, he had serendipity, right? The, the, the good fortune to witness an event and the, and the good wit or the good intellect to capture, in fact, an insight from it and realize that this was going to become a life-saving drug. So in 1928, he made this discovery. Uh, and for that, he was awarded the Nobel Prize. He was awarded 435 degrees of, uh, you know, honorary degrees and, and awards of state. Tremendously successful. Uh, children were named after him and all sorts of cities and streets everywhere. Um, 
And that's how the story goes. Now, the, the fun thing about my job is I get to look a little deeper into these stories. You know, having spent time at Apple and in other companies that are, that are widely considered to be you know, incredibly innovative companies, I listen to stories like that and I think, I have never seen anything happen like that. So I look beyond it and I, and I realize that what I see is in fact, uh, first off, if you go into the records, about 150 BC, we have written records of Persian soldiers who would actually cultivate molds uh, and bring them with them on campaigns to rub into wounds and, and scrapes because they knew that it somehow prevented bacterial infections. If you jump to the 1870s, you find, in the 1850s and 60s, you find the first European scientists to practice the scientific method. The first observations they made were that molds killed bacteria and, in fact, that bacteria killed molds. And it was because every time they tried to culture something and grow it, something else would get in and ruin the experiment. And so they made these observations. So by the time uh, the 1900s came along, that was old news. In fact, you know, the, first, uh, the first actual experiment on penicillin was done by a doctoral student in France who inoculated guinea pigs with the tuberculosis and typhoid and, and then treated them to show that the penicillin glaucum mold actually cured them. Along comes a Costa Rican doctor in 1927 to show he's treated patients with mold, publishes that in the French journals. And then in 1928, along comes Alexander Fleming to make the same discovery except he really didn't make that discovery. What he noticed was, again, another mold that got in and ruined a nice bacteria experiment. And then he published on it. But he didn't publish that it was a life-saving antibiotic. He published on the fact that you could use that mold basically to clean and to sterilize Petri dishes. It would kill all of the other molds, and you could start over again and use the Petri dish again. So it didn't go very far, and rightly so. He didn't even write up that discovery in his lab book when he supposedly saw it. What he did was publish a paper about its use, and then people started to use it to clean their Petri dishes, and that got the, the, the mold out. And then for the next 10 years, absolutely nothing happened. People didn't pursue mold then because they had already seen 60 years of it and given up uh, a lot of expectation that it could do anything. Until 1939, when this guy, Howard Florey, let's see, where is he? There he is, came along and... Uh, as a doctor, he actually graduated from Cambridge in biology. He went to the University of Sheffield. He returned to, uh, he actually was undergrad at Oxford, uh, returned to Oxford to run the Dunn School of Pathology. And there he decided to focus his team's efforts on antibacterials, all of these things, molds, egg whites, uh, tears, mucus that had these antibacterial properties associated with them. He put his team to work on that in 1939 in the fall. By the fall of 1941, he had developed, uh, produced the molds, isolated them, purified them, demonstrated in, in, um, in vitro, and then demonstrated in animals and in humans that penicillin was, in fact, a miraculous antibiotic. Then he convinced the U.S. pharmaceutical firms to adopt penicillin and commercially develop it so that by the end of 1945, it was widely available to everybody. So for two years, from 1939 to 1941, Howard Florey took an idea that was around for, by any count, either 1,500 years, 70 years, 20 years, 10 years, pick whatever date you want, and he took it from an idea to an invention. And that's actually a wonderful thing for people like me to study because it gives me a clear two-year window to see what they did, and then about 150 years, you know, 215, you name your point, to see what people didn't do and why it didn't work until then. So I got to ask the question, what did Flory do that the others didn't to make their idea successful? 
And this is really what I think is probably the most valuable thing that any of us could know. And I'll tell you why in just a second. But it's important to recognize that if we can take any idea and turn it into an innovation, any good idea, that is, we are the missing link between so many of those things that are out there, climate change, poverty, hunger, malnutrition, obesity, and turn those things into real solutions instead of the things that everybody talks about in the news every day, we have a real advantage. And so as, you know, in healthcare, where else is this you know, as impactful? So that's what I wanted to talk about. And I have, you know, if I could tell you one thing about innovation, it's these three things. I have three lessons to give you. The first of those is important before I get to the other two, right? The first of those is it's not about the idea. If you think it's about the idea, you're part of the problem, not part of the solution. The idea of penicillin, well, let me, let me start with this, excuse me. So we think about ideas a lot. The light bulb. Edison you know, invented the light bulb. Well, actually, his first patent for a light bulb was, was turned down because it was too similar to one filed 40 years earlier. There were 40 years, there was actually about 70 years worth of light bulbs before Edison came along. He didn't invent the light bulb, but he did turn it into an innovation. The automobile was about 30 years old before Ford got to it. Google was the 23rd search engine on the market. In fact, it was easy for them to get funding because the first search engines had already cashed out and their venture investors had already made millions of dollars. So, so they looked at and they were looking for the next wave of search engines, and that was Google. Facebook, everybody knows Facebook. Back when it was a good company, it was still a knockoff of MySpace, Friendster. The iPod was the 16th MP3 player on the market. I have the distinction of knowing the investor, the lead investor on the 15th MP3 player on the market. These people did not feel so good about it, but the fact is that was not new either. And then finally, the iPhone. Anybody remembers before the iPhone, there was something called BlackBerry, and before BlackBerry, there was Sony, you know, there was Treo and Handspring and Sony Ericsson and Nokia. There were internet enabled phones for about a decade before the iPhone. So the idea is not what drives innovation. It's the ability to take that idea and turn it into something successful. And I think that's really you know, the, most, the, the most important lesson I could give you. But it's also the most important lesson I have to undo because in third grade, you started learning that for every great idea, there's a single person who has it at a single point in time. Before that, the idea doesn't exist. And after that, the world was never the same. And we learned that this is actually the list from my, high school, my daughter's uh, third grade uh, encyclopedia. And it lists all the great men. And yes, it's, it's as bad as that. It's called the great man theory, not, not only because it's wrong about ideas, but it's also wrong about men. So, you know, we can go down the list and find all of the people who helped, you know, all of the women who were involved in these things as well. But, but that's the wrong path to go because these were not individual ideas had by individual people. But that's the way we learn all of these things. And if you think that you're, you're only successful if you become a great man or a great woman, you're missing the point of innovation. So with that said, don't let what you learned in third grade get in the way of the way the world works and the way change happens. All right, which brings me to my next point, which is if it's not about the idea, what is it? It's about the, the network. In fact, the network is the innovation. I'll give you a little bit of you know, a, a background on that to make sure that you get it because this is such an important thing. When I say the word penicillin, most of us tend to think of it as what we've experienced, which is, well, the, for example, a mold. This is, Fleming, well, this is not Fleming's mold, actually. This is my coffee cup in my office. I had to take a picture of it because I, too, discovered penicillin. 
I didn't mean to do it, but neither did Fleming. I just happened to be a couple years later, but so was he. So I don't see why I shouldn't get just as much credit. Uh, Penicillin was everywhere. Still is. All right. No, we don't think about it that way so much as we think about it either as a molecule or we think about it as a pill now or we think about it as an injection. Right? We think about penicillin as this, this, this thing that exists independent of everything else, but it's not. Now, this is where it's a complicated slide, so apologies for that. But you know, the reality of penicillin is that before there was penicillin, there was no network around it. After Howard Florey, there was a network that included the ideas around penicillin and the mold antibiotic behaviors, the technologies necessary to produce it, to isolate it, to purify it, to test it in, in, uh, in animals and in humans, the people involved in that process, the organizations that had to invest enormous sums of money and then reaped back all that money as pharmaceutical firms, the first large-scale modern pharmaceutical firms, all of the policies associated with enabling a medicine like that, with testing, regulating it, uh, and then, in fact, supporting it as it was developed, and all of the other resources and everything else that actually makes penicillin possible. And until we realize that that's actually what it looks like, we don't fully appreciate the challenge of turning an idea into an innovation. So let me just go back then to think about the light bulb. This is a simple idea, but it never occurred to me until just a couple years ago. Let's say you're in your room and you invent a light bulb. What do you do? Do you run out and screw it into the nearest socket and then turn it on to see if it works? Because who built the socket and the wiring and and the power... Nobody comes up with a light bulb and then, uh, you know, and, and then gets, uh, gets a reward for it. That light bulb was around for a long time. Small-scale systems, lighting systems, were around for 20, 30 years before Edison realized that the real solution is actually to make all of that go away and just wire the house, wire the building, the office, the ship, the hotel, so that anybody anywhere can flip a switch and light comes on. And that doesn't happen with a single idea or a single technology. That happens by building in in a vast network and with all of the investment money that's necessary, all of the people that are necessary. To do that, he actually had to found 11 companies, one focused on building the generators and one focused on building the power stations, one focused on burying the lines underground and managing them, one focused on installing in the houses, one focused on building light bulbs. And he had, he had not only had to build those 11 companies, but actually to get them all funded and then make sure that they all work together to, to create the modern utility model. That's innovation. Prior to that, it's just a light bulb. Okay, so if we look at penicillin, and, and don't worry, this is just there to impress you with the work I did. <laughs> this is the network that Howard Florey had to build in order to bring penicillin to the patient. And, uh, and now I'll give you a, a little bit of an example of how he built that network, and it'll, some of the, the details of that will come out. So the third lesson, then, is innovating. Actually, doing the work of innovation means building networks. So I want to I just linger on this point for a little bit, because most of the time, if you ask people, what, you know, what are the, the, the skills and the traits of somebody who's innovative? You know, I get questions like, well, don't you, you know, aren't you born that way? You know, it's, not, it's not like you're made or anything. If you look at the skills that make people innovative, we tend to think it's the ability to have good ideas, the ability to take risk, the ability to, you know, to, to have a vision that nobody else has. But if you look at all of these examples I gave you, other people had these very same visions. Other people had the same ideas, the same skills. What these people did so well was actually bring everybody together. It's a different skill set. 
And if you think, you know, working away in your office or in your lab bench or something alone is going to get you anything, it's not the way it works. In fact, you know, so what we see is what we call nexus work. It's work not in the network. It's not hanging out in your office on Facebook. It's work on the network. It's actually building relationships that weren't there before, connecting people to technologies that weren't connected before. We'll talk a little bit about this in the panel. You back then. There's our friend Alexander Fleming toiling away in his lab, having that lone genius insight that lone geniuses have so often. Uh, and along comes penicillin. Well, in fact, the reality is this is Howard Florey and the team of scientists he had to pull together to learn how to grow mold in, in quantities enough to actually be sufficient, to, to isolate it, to, to uh, purify it, to stabilize it, to test it in animals, to test it in humans, and then eventually to convert it into a, a commercial production for, uh, 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 at, at scale. That means you know, uh, you've got blood specialists, mold specialists, bacterial specialists, animal model specialists. Those aren't skills that everybody all has, and that's not an insight that any one person can have. So you see innovations constantly improving because he brought the team of people together that had those skills. Uh, and so that's the network he built. But, but again, as I said, let me give you a little bit more grounded view of that network. This is one of my favorite accomplishments in the entire penicillin story. This is the production process in an Oxford a classroom that they took over in order to build this. This is the production process that proved that you could actually make penicillin and purify it, and it wasn't as toxic as people thought, if it was pure. So what you see, in fact, is what, what's actually happening. There was the, the, the stack on the left. It starts out by growing molds in hospital bedpans, because that turned out to be the best place you could grow a mold. From those bedpans, you poured it into a bathtub. From that bathtub, you ran it through a dairy milk cooler to cool it down into milk churns, which were then uh, spun out, and then you added an acid into it. The, the penicillin, the actual molecule, dissolved in the acid. Then you spun out the rest of it. You brought it back into the milk churns. You added a buffer. The, the penicillin precipitated back out. And then you, uh, you drained it down and, and freeze-dried it, and you had stable, pure penicillin. All right, what I like about it, actually, is because also um, what you had to do in order to do that was have a scientist, a professor of all people. And, and I've got to tell you, we are not the best at building networks. Uh, we, we don't go into this business because we, you know, we, we build networks. Uh, but a professor had to organize and actually create this penicillin production system. He hired girls from the local high school to tend all of the bedpans and keep churning them and making sure they were growing. He built a system, this system, with milk churns and, and glass blown that he, he had to blow himself in order to make it work. The funnest part of this picture that I, I, think, I think is the wood frame that holds all of that together was an oak bookcase he stole from the Oxford Library. So... This is a person who knew how to build a network. It might have been things, but he brought all these things together, put it in the relationship, and guess what? Five years later, that's what his system looked like. And he was supplying the world with penicillin. Very quickly, this is what happens when you bring networks together. That was Norman Heatley's contraption. When he was finished building it, he could produce 400,000 units of penicillin a month, which was capable of treating 20 patients. by the time they got the Oxford, uh, uh, excuse me, the, the pharmaceutical firms involved in this process, the next year they were making 80 million units a month of penicillin. The year after that, when they had started to scale up that production process and improve it in any way they could, they were making 4 billion units of penicillin a month. And what, again, I said about networks, 
It's exponential. They're interactions. Once you've figured out what the network needs to look like, you can begin to improve it. But until you build that network, you can't improve on it. You can't come up with the best until you start with it. And so that's the point at which this curve actually starts to, to move off the horizontal axis. Within a year, it was 350 billion units a month of penicillin. And by year five, it was 750 billion units a month of penicillin. And that was enough to treat the world. They went from something that people didn't think could be made into something that was actually more expensive to put in the vials than it was to produce. And as I said, that changed the world. And that's what my doctor friend came up and, reminded, and told me about was that day when it got into his hospital. And that was in 1945. Now, bringing it all back around, nobody cared who Alexander Fleming was until that curve started. Nobody cared who invented penicillin. Alexander Fleming was a no-name until the, the 1943, when people said, oh, my gosh, this is curing people. And then they said, who invented it? And his dean, actually, at the St. Mary's Research Hospital, his dean had the brilliance to say, Alexander Fleming did. You know, all the other people were dead who, who first thought they were 1,500 years ago. It's like, so he claimed credit, and suddenly Fleming got credit because everybody thought there had to be some brilliant person behind it. Don't ever fall for that. But that's the story. What actually happened is this team built it. Now, why is this so important? This is happening everywhere around us. Uh, you know, I worked at Apple, and I had the, the, uh, the pleasure of being there during the, the 90s. It was a really exciting time. Um, then they almost went under. They came back uh, early 2000. And one of the ways that they came back was, in fact, to introduce the iPod. As I said, it was the 16th MP3 player on the market. It was by no means new. So why did they do it? They did it because they were so small and they were, they were in such trouble that nobody was building MP3 players for Apple. That was the cause. It wasn't some brilliant vision. But what they did when they saw the opportunity and the need to build an iPod was they realized they could build a better network around it than anybody else had built around theirs. If you, ever, if you were there and you tried to you know, buy an MP3 player and connect it to your PC and you had to go chase down the driver and you chase down the file formats and figure it all out, uh, Apple said, you know, we're going to make all of that seamless, a little bit like Edison putting all of that stuff in the background. So they pulled together all of the suppliers that made all of the parts of all of the other MP3 players. They simply put them together in a different way that enabled the user to have a seamless, wonderful user experience. But they didn't invent any of them. In fact, that was probably their secret, is they didn't bother inventing anything new. Uh, not only that, but then they kept growing that network, and they realized that the connection they had between the Apple Macintosh the operating system, the, the iTunes jukebox music system that they had bought, not built, and then the MP3 gave them another advantage, was they could go to the record labels and say, you can sell music online legally now. And they got the record labels involved, and that was the first time that they could actually sell music online and trust that nobody would pirate it. That put Apple in charge of about 70% of online music sales almost immediately. Apple took over as a music company as much as anything else. And then they added the apps that they had on the Macintosh system to make your, your user experience with the iPod better. And then they added some cell phone circuitry that came right out of BlackBerry. They added a camera. They added internet connectivity. They added an app platform. And pretty soon, people were, uh, other people were making apps that were making the iPhone experience better. Apple created a network that didn't exist before. That's why we remember them. We don't think about it that way, but that's how we need to think about it if we want to think about how we can make change happen. All right. So let me finish with, you know, 
the reason this isn't something that we all know about is because it's not easy. People have a hard time doing it. Steve Jobs said, yeah, I never spend so much of my time trying to convince people to do the right thing for themselves. Howard Florey said something similar. He said, I felt like a carpetbag salesman trying to promote a crazy idea for some ulterior motive. He got turned down by all the British pharmaceutical industry, uh, all British pharmaceutical firms because they thought, oh, this is going to be too expensive. We don't want to get involved in this. The American firms turned them all down until he finally found one person in government who actually came back and called them all together and said, no, I think you guys should do this. This is a good idea. So that's where it's at, is it's hard work, but it's absolutely essential if you want to change the world. One of my favorite science fiction authors, William Gibson, once said, you know, the future's already here. It's just unevenly distributed. That's true. But what that means is it's waiting around for somebody to come up with the way to redistribute it. And usually that's by making networks. So I have three lessons I, I wanted to give you, right? The first, it's not about the idea. The second, innovations are networks. And the third, it's about building networks. So if I leave you with anything tonight, it's that question, you know, are you prepared for that? What do you need to do to become good at being a part of a network, of building a network, of building your part of that network? Because that's more important than anything else right now, if you want to drive innovation. All right, and with that, I want to I say thank you so much for listening, and, and, uh, and I appreciate all the time you gave me, and I want to say also thank you for, for having me here. Thank you. Um, so welcome back from your break. I hope you're re-energized. I know it's hard to sit for a couple hours, so we wanted to give you a little break there to re-energize. And um, I'm glad you're back because we have an epic panel. Um, this is going to be a great discussion. So in addition to our esteemed keynote speaker, whom you've already met, we have three uh, expert practitioners in the field of innovation and technology transformation. Cecilia Sun leads the charge to modernize our member experience. You heard Paul talk a little bit about that in the video. With digital tools and mobile apps that put the power of your health plan into the palm of your hand. And some of you may say, gosh, we've been doing mobile stuff a long time. Well, healthcare's catching up, and she's leading the charge for us on that. We also have Laika Kayani, who leads our healthcare innovation team, which is an innovation engine inside the company that takes ideas from concept to prototype to production to fuel an innovation funnel for our company, both inside and outside of Blue Shield. And tonight's panel is moderated by Nicole Brooks, who is the Director of Innovation for our Accountable Care Organizations. So you're going to hear a lot about innovation and transformation here in the panel discussion. Nicole, take it away. Great. Thank you. All right. So how are we doing tonight? Good? We're, we're dry, so that's good. So that, that was not supposed to be the forecast for tonight. So welcome. I am so pleased uh, to be able to introduce this panel to you. Um, Becky already did a great job, um, so I will let you, and Andy, I know we've already got a chance to hear from you and, and, and meet you, but we'd love to hear a little bit more about your background and where you guys are from. Um, so I'll turn that over to you in just a second. So as Becky said, my name is Nicole Brooks. I am the director of our ACO program development and innovation team. I work on a, I work with a team that's uh, focused more externally with our physician groups and our hospitals really working to drive down the cost of care, helping to improve quality, improve the patient experience, and ultimately deliver on our mission of making healthcare affordable, sustainably affordable for all Californians and worthy of our family and friends. So 
Before we get started, why don't um, you guys introduce yourself? Andy, I know we've heard from you a little bit, so um, why don't you just share with us maybe where you're from and maybe a little bit more about your background? Uh, uh, well, so I grew up in California. Uh, essentially, I'm an East Coast transplant, but at the age of six, you know, you're still a sponge, so we moved to Palo Alto and uh, essentially been a Californian ever since. Um, worked in the Silicon Valley uh, and uh, went to Stanford and uh, and then worked my way up to Davis, uh, where which was I think we chose that because it was it was Palo Alto in the 1970s all over again, <laughs> a wonderful place with a, you know with a lot of opportunity. Um, so that's that's where I'm from. Great. All right. Well, Cecilia, do you want to tell us? Yeah. About hey, yourself? everyone. Cecilia Sun. I lead our digital customer experience team, and um, I previously was at American Express, where I got the chance to work with uh, Mr. Todd Walthall, and I'm actually three years old in healthcare, which feels like dog years. I still feel like three-month-old every day because there's just so much to learn. Um, and while at American Express and also here, you know, dabbled in, have seen how different kinds of approaches to innovation worked and didn't work, as you know, financial services is still undergoing its own transformation. And I've seen everything from what not to do, like create a team called Disruptive Innovation, stick them in a basement in London and call it Silicon Basement, that is not how, you, and tell them to go innovate. That is not how you do innovation, right? Two other kinds of examples there and at Blue Shield where we're actually doing small and large experimentation. So happy to be here and would love to share more thoughts with you guys. And where are you from? Oh, um, also at East Coast Transplant, have lived mostly in New York City. So also three years old in San Francisco and love it so far. And we love having you. Okay, and Laika? Awesome, thank you. Uh, my name is Laika Kayani. I'm one of our directors in our health innovation technology team. I'm responsible for product strategy. Um, I've been with Blue Shield for about three years now. Uh, prior to my innovation role, I was our CIO's chief of staff, responsible for technology planning and strategy. Um, I come from management consulting, so I've consulted for um, large payer organizations as well as uh, public and private sector. Um, spent a lot of time with the VA um, and the military health system, so it's nice to kind of be able to compare your pri my private and public experiences together. Um, I was born in Pakistan. Um, I was seven when I moved to the U.S. and raised in Atlanta, Georgia, so um, a lot of people often ask me, where's my accent? I try to hide it. Y'all does come out every <laughs> once in a while. <laughs> um, but yeah, I moved to San Francisco about seven years ago. All right, great. Well, let's go ahead and get started. So innovation, obviously, is a key theme for tonight. We heard Andy talk a lot about it. And, you know, when I started at Blue Shield over eight years ago now, you know, healthcare innovation wasn't necessarily at the forefront of all of our conversations. You know, Silicon Valley certainly was not paying attention to healthcare at that time in the way it is today. And now it's everywhere, right? Innovation, the word innovation's everywhere. It's in 50% of the titles of the folks sitting up here on this panel. Um, you know, and any time you have a, a term like that becomes, you know, ubiquitous within any industry, it's going to mean something a little bit differently depending on who you are and what your background is, what your set of experiences are. So you could be in a conversation with somebody both using the word innovation and really be meaning two very different things. So before we kind of dive into the rest of our questions, I wanted to just first um, hear from you all, you know, what does innovation mean from you? You've got three folks with three very different backgrounds, come from uh, some different experiences. So I think it would be helpful for us just to hear from you, you know, what does innovation mean to you? 
Andy, I know we got to hear um, you know, a, a great representation from your standpoint around it's not just the idea, it's about the network. Um, so we'll start with Cecilia and Leica, but then would love to hear any sort of additional comments you have. Sure, yes. um, I can get started. I actually loved what you said, Andy, and this is maybe the practical business world application of a lot of the concepts, but I see it as three ingredients. One is bold imagination, or in some cases, reimagination. I think in healthcare, a lot of it probably requires a reimagination, um, along with practical use or the right kind of execution. And so, when you think about people or teams, also it's the dreamer. You need a you know you need dreamers and you need makers, right? Now, the third ingredient, though, is probably more the outcome, which is that it generates an actual new behavior. So, for me, the there's big and small examples, right? The big example um, that I always tell, having come from sort of the credit card industry, is how many of you have heard of Travelocity? Okay. So for those of us who are a little bit older, there was once a time where someone thought there was no way you can book an airline ticket on your own. You needed to go to a travel agent. And it happened back in 1970s when American Airlines opened up their reservation system called Sabre to actually the travel agent community. It wasn't until... Travelocity launched in 1996, and Amex saw a lot of turmoil when this happened because we had a travel business that was getting disrupted. And what happened was someone applied technology onto something that empowered the consumer to do something that nobody imagined you can ever do. I know some of you who are younger probably thought, what do you mean? Booking a ticket is as easy as you know, walking out the door. And so that's my large example, right, where all three ingredients were there. There are smaller examples, though, like how many of you now know to, pull, uh, to refresh, you just have to pull down the screen on an app? That's a user experience innovation that happened probably just about 12 months ago, 24 months ago, that someone invented. But now it is a habit we all do. And when we design digital experiences, we actually use that as a standard, right? Those are large and small, and those are the three ingredients I think about when I define innovation. Okay, thank you. Micah? Thank you. Um, so I think of innovation also to be very contextual. Um, innovation, depending on where you are in your own journey, um, innovation can mean very different things. Um, I'm going to take a more organizational approach to innovation. Um, when I think about innovation, especially in the work that we do collectively at Blue Shield, um, we have core innovation and we have non-core innovations. To me, core innovations are how are we reimagining, rethinking, flipping it, on, flipping it on its head kind of ideas to reimagine what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. That means how are we paying claims? How are we answering the phones differently? What are the connection points to our members? Non-core innovations are, are those big ideas that you know, we've talked about already so far. Um, they can be the disruptors. They can be the transformative, um, habit-changing, industry-changing things. I think about some of the big, my, one of my favorite examples, which Dr. Hargadon took all of my examples through his presentation, so I'm like... Yeah, we were over there taking notes saying, scratch that one, scratch that one. <laughs> my Rolodex of ideas. Um, but the one I actually, um, I'm fascinated by these days is the gig economy. Um, have you, you know, thinking about Uber and having um, all of this capacity that people are using and reimagining how that's being used. Airbnb, who no, does not own any of their hotels, right? Hosts are opening up their homes to people. But that's, an, that's a really big example of how we've taken 
taking problems and this whole notion of an, a really big idea and move that through the execution pathway. And so for me, innovation is not just, hey, I have that idea, but it's, what is it going to do? How is it going to transform? And think about it. Gig industry is a big deal. You know, we are, um, for us as a health plan, it's a big deal because now we have to think about how do we make health plans more attractive to those individuals. Um, but it's, a, it's transforming how we even think about staying in people's homes, how we think about hotels. And we no longer think about going to hotels. We actually go to Airbnb. And that's so fascinating. So I think it's both core and non-core. And I think it's totally t contextual to where you are in your journey. That's great. Thank you, Leica. So Andy, I don't know if their comments spark any additional thoughts you have or you want to share. Well, I, I don't want to leave you hanging, but uh, so uh, the, the one thing that I didn't talk about that I think I, you guys didn't talk about either, but I think we all know inherently, there, there's a really key ingredient to innovation, um, and that's commitment. Uh, that you know, and that comes from everybody. The, you know, the person with the idea to commit themselves to actually moving it forward and getting other people to buy in, which is gaining commitment from others, but. You know, one of the things that I, you know, I've done a lot of case studies in organizations, and I really enjoy interviewing the people involved. And one of the things that is surprisingly good, at, you know, we're all good at it, is gauging whether somebody else is committed. You know, are they in this, or are they just sort of trying to get me into this so that they don't have to get into it? You know, and, and so I think, you know, I, I think one of the things that we always should be paying attention to is how do you manage commitment in the innovation process? Because it's a lot of fun to do a lot of side projects or experiments or anything else. But if it's only going to work when so-and-so commits, then let's make sure they're... Yeah. So that, that challenge is, is a big part yeah. of the definition of innovation. I think that's great. And actually, that's, that's a perfect lead-in for our perfect. next question. Talk about commitment when you've got you know, a, a, a new ideas and, or sort of new areas. You know, we're, we're seeing in healthcare now this trend of all these new entrants, right? Non-healthcare entities making their way into the healthcare space. So it started with Google and Apple, and now we've got the recent announcements from Amazon, J.P. Morgan Chase, Walmart starting to get into the game. So there's, there's certainly a lot, you know, well, before they were innovating or trying to innovate in healthcare, right, they were innovation leaders in their own space. So certainly we know that healthcare can stand to learn from them. And there are other organizations out there that aren't necessarily trying to get into healthcare, but that healthcare could be looking to for best practices. So I'm just curious, you know, what are your guys' thoughts on these new entrants coming into healthcare, and, and what can healthcare learn from these other industries? Cecilia, I'm going to pick on you first, since you were a new entrant into healthcare. So we took you from the financial industries, uh, financial services industry. So we'll start with you. Yes. Yeah, so on that point about the new entrants, I actually think we welcome it, right? And especially the Amazon cluster. Um, there is an employee, I think one of the next trends we'll see is that there is an employer revolt going on mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, they and their employees are end users of some of these products. And if they're not seeing the results or their needs met, you know, there is going to be, they're going to put their fate in their own hands. And that always um, is a good thing for the industry, I think. For any industry trying to transform, you need the end users to actually kind of revolt a little bit, right? Now, the one thing I would say related to that, that we as healthcare need to learn still a lot more from other industries, and Mary and I were in a recent meeting, and she actually coined this phrase, which is true consumerism. That takes people, process, and technology, right? You need to have the right mindset. And so um, 
one of the things that we have done that I think I've seen success both at American Express and here is a very deliberate people strategy that I think, Andy, you alluded to, mm -hmm. right? Bringing in a CMO, chief marketing officer, not chief medical officer, because obviously those <laughs> acronyms mean different things in different industries, but marketing officer from Delta Airlines who is you know, known for their brand, right? I brought in um, specific actual retail e-commerce experts into our digital team to look at our enrollment processes because there's no reason we can't design that with e-commerce in mind. But there are other areas you need healthcare experts, you know, who are right there in the mix with you. And so that deliberate learn from external applied with reimagination to the internal on consumerism specifically is I think one of the main things we are focused on as a company and one of the main things that healthcare um, can learn from the likes of retail, the likes of property and casualty insurance, the likes of financial services, right, who's still trying to get it right. Um, and so that's one aspect in my mind that actually is um, a big focus. The other focus, I think, relatedly is, and this is a big word, but it's related to how you know maximization of your data. So there's a lot of really um, major innovations around clinical applications of technology. Not as much on sort of the practical use of data from a consumer side, right? Coming from American Express, fraud and risk management is something that we focus on so much. Every time you press send in an application for a credit card, there are lots of things going on in the background to check up on you, right? Here, there's a lot of reliance on delayed data on claims to manage risk. Two-year delayed data. That kind of reimagination and application of data in different ways, I think, is another thing we can learn from the likes of retail um, and financial services, where um, they, they are using data for different outcomes that we are all driving to, but we just haven't maybe gotten there yet or leveraged the amount of, it's probably more insights than data because there's so much data in the industry, but how do you use it is probably what I'm talking about. So those are the two That's great. I would focus on. Thank you, Cecilia. Andy, I'm curious, just from your research and the work you're doing, you know, what, what are your thoughts on this? I, so, so this is a great question. I, I, I don't mean to oversimplify, but I think the one, the one thing to always remember is don't overestimate the capacity of these new entrants to actually disrupt anything, and don't underestimate mm -hmm. your abilities just because you don't know data, right? This is one of those, you know, for them, they're, you know, they're Maslow's child with a hammer. You know, they have a hammer, and they're bringing it into healthcare, uh, but, you know, Google brought that hammer into energy, and nothing happened. Actually, it sucked all the oxygen out of some very good energy startups because Google was coming in. Uh, they brought it into medicine, and it didn't, you know, back 10 years ago, and nothing happened. So I, I think, you know, at the same time, um, they're bringing something. They just don't know how to use it. And, and you guys do. You know, you know the problem intimately well. Right. I, I love that, and I just want to tell one quick story that relates to that. Is I actually was at a conference um, where the CTO of Oscar Health um, was on uh, the stage talking about this exact thing along with the chief innovation officer of um, Providence St. Joe's, which is a hospital system here in California and Oregon. Both of them came from, one came from Amazon and the other one came, I believe, from Google. And they both actually said that one of the things they learned very quickly, probably in the first year, is the hubris that they brought with them 
that made them realize, you know, if it was if it was easy, someone would have done it already, right? It doesn't mean that we don't need talent like that or entrants to do that. But to your point, they self, you know, in a self-aware way, said we were we just thought we can come in and change this industry, and we were dead wrong. And so I think that speaks to exactly what you're saying, right? So th- there's a there's a fun process. We uh, so we, we we call it net storming. It's a little bit like brainstorming, only you're trying to figure out the network, but. Imagine all of the jobs that need to be done to bring big data to fraud prevention. And you can actually kind of map them all out and how they're connected to one another. And then you realize, oh, yeah, you know, Google or Apple, these guys have this cluster over here. They're missing this entire place over here, but they have this piece. So how do we, you know, how do we welcome them in and say, okay, you guys could really play a good role here. But you know, it's not going to be world domination, but you guys could play a really good role here. And if you can't, then maybe some of your people, could, we could hire some of your people and Absolutely. help them. Yeah. So we might have a better understanding of how they might be able to come into healthcare and help uh, add yeah. value. Yeah. That's great. OK, so let's move on to our next question. I'm going to take us down a level um, into healthcare a little bit deeper, um, and specifically around the challenges that we face here in the healthcare industry as it relates to innovation. And Leica, I know you in particular in your role here at Blue Shield, you know, you've been trying to push the envelope for quite some time, doing some fantastic work. Um, do you want to share with us just some of your experiences, you know, in driving innovation and some of the challenges that, that we face here? Um, definitely. I think um, after Dr. Hargadon's talk, I, it was clear to me, like, the network here is incredibly important. Um, and the lesson for me so far that I've learned, I think, is not that, I needed to be an expert in something or I needed to um, demonstrate my value, what I really needed to do was bring folks together to this common understanding or this common goal um, to really see the vision of the thing that we're trying to push forward. So I think while it is a challenge, I think it's not, um, we're not far, that far, right? And I, we're, we're seeing that even in how we're approaching our providers. Um, you know, oftentimes we get this, we get comments like, well, as a health plan, what does it really mean for you to, you know, really affect care between patients and providers? The relationship is between the two. And I would say that we have a role to play in that. We facilitate that that relationship. We we have to have that network effect to make sure that we could introduce the right programs, introduce the right things and products to our providers that they can then drive to high-quality healthcare um, that can be given to our members. And so that relationship and that network to us is really incredibly important, and we play a really, really big role in that. But it can pose a challenge. I would say also from an industry perspective, there are two things. There's a mindset shift. So we are talking a lot about this whole concept of like, you know, regulatory environments. It has an impediment in our ability to execute. And so I think really questioning um, what the regulatory environment is and what does it really mean, why does it exist, I think that's really important. The mind mind shift change that has to occur is really important. But speed to execution also matters. You know, we oftentimes are looking for a lot of precision very early on in healthcare. We're looking for proven technology, proven outcomes, proven this, proven... Now, I would argue, if you're implanting a device in someone's heart, I, I would think there's some precision required there. Accuracy is good. Accuracy is really important. <laughs> but I think where we are oftentimes trying to deploy something that... 
we're a little unsure whether it's going to give us the outcome that we're looking for. We often look to go really deep in understanding the outcomes and understanding the value chain and and then we never launch, right? And so I think that is such a big problem. And I think the speed to execution generally in healthcare is something we have to address um, on many fronts. So I think those are some of the challenges that I'm seeing even in my role. And, and you know, and, But I think it's all really positive. It's encouraging everyone to see a different way of doing things, and that to me is really exciting. Mm-hmm. And we know change takes time. Change takes time. Thank you, Leica. Andy, I'm curious what your thoughts are on this or any sort of guidance or um, insights you have on challenges in the healthcare industry around innovation. Well, I mean, I think the... The biggest challenge that I see, and, and again, I, you know, as I said, my wife's a primary care, and probably, I, I get to see the, you know, the the on the ground mm-hmm. practice of it, and the frustrations and the challenges there. I, but I, I do think that the, what we have to be really careful to recognize the the age and the complexity of this industry, and and the skill set that then is required as a result. And you know, you're you're basically trying to get elephants to dance together. This is not, you know, IBM where you're trying to change one large company. This is you're trying to change a large company who's engaged with 50 other large companies, mm-hmm. doing practices that are managed at the federal and state level, and that is that is a political skill. That is a social skill. And and you know, what you said like about the ability to paint a picture that says this is this is how we could all play together if we make a change. This is what you could do differently, and this is what you would get from it. This is how you could do it differently, and this is what you would get. Uh, and if we all act together, we might be able to change policy in the way that would enable us to do this. Uh, you know, that's a set of, of skills that I think needs to kind of rise to the top of the innovation effort in, in, in this space. And I think the changing policy, I'm sure every industry faces that, the, the concept of needing to change policy in order to innovate. But I feel like we come up against that quite a bit in healthcare. You know, when, when HIPAA was originally formulated, I don't know that they envisioned the idea that we would be trying to share data in the ways that we are today. And so HIPAA, in a way, is, is um, limiting. So we need to maybe look at some of these policies and say, okay, how can we, what, what role can we play in helping to influence these policies so that it is easier for us to innovate? Yeah, and maybe I can add one thing, too, on the uniqueness or the challenges um, the consumer intentions when it comes to healthcare and how you influence their behavior is a very different one than trying to get them to sign up for a credit card or buy a pair of shoes, mm-hmm. right? There are some things that can be rational, but then in a moment of need, you are not necessarily going to go to the cheapest option, even if it has quality. You are going to go to the option that saves your life, your family's life, your friend's life. And so in that framework influencing behavior of the users in the system becomes a whole different game. Um, You need to understand not just the processes, right, but also where you can educate, where you can influence. You need to put away your ego and say, if I need to engineer trust in order to drive this outcome, sometimes I got to get out of the way because they don't trust a health insurance company, they trust the provider. Flip side, sometimes younger people may not be tied to a provider, and then you can step in and engineer trust that way, right? There's a lot of that that I haven't seen in existence elsewhere where that irrational emotional behavior is so strong that nothing you do can influence behavior exactly the way you want. And so I think that's also a unique thing we have to think about as we journey towards consumerism in this space. 
Yeah, and I just add the user experience matters. Putting, you know, you saw that slide about our um, strategy. Putting our members, our consumers, in the center of everything that we do matters because it affects lives, and it really, you know, to to Cecilia's points point, it's. The behavior is unpredictable, but we know that we have to touch deep inside the human soul to say, you know, when my <laughs> husband jams my son's finger in a door, the first thing he does is either calls me or knows exactly where to go. And those are like the kinds of emotions that you deal with in the healthcare industry. And you can't, you can't just recreate those, right? Like you just have to or capture those and, or, or ignore them. them. Um, but you have to capture those in the moment. So, I mean, that to me was a big learning experience to say the user matters. So don't ignore them. <laughs> Well, the concept in healthcare of even thinking about the member and patient as a user, right? That, that's even pretty new. That's right. Well, this was great. Thank you both so much for your thoughts on that. And Andy, any final parting comments or thoughts for us on innovation and... Uh, so so the, the, I was thinking about it going forward, in the next 10 years, 15 years, what would be the best skill that anybody in Blue Shield could have? And I, I don't mean to be presumptuous at all, and it's going to turn out to be almost a platitude. But uh, <laughs> honestly, I feel like the, the, the single most important skill is, is the ability to manage uncertainty. And that means manage, you're going to have enormous uncertainties coming forward. As, you know, as these entrants bring in new technologies, and they start their lobbying efforts, and you're going to have these issues around you know, user information and privacy, but also you're going to be under constraints that they may not be under because they gathered it under a different set of conditions. Uh, you know, it's going to create this enormous amount of uncertainty, and your individual and collective abilities to say, yes, it's uncertain. So instead of not acting, which is our gut-level reaction to uncertainty, we're going to have to actually go do something, poke it, and see what happens. And, and reduce that uncertainty through action. And I think you know, it, it kind of ties back to the notion of commitment, which is in the ability to actually commit to doing something to resolve the uncertainty versus waiting to see whether the uncertainty just goes away. Mm-hmm. And that, that, uh, that is a skill set, and it's, you know, it's an organizational capability at the same time. And so I would say you know, think about how you're organizing to manage against it. Well, that is great. Can I add to that? I love yeah. that because I, I like the I like uh, Mary O'Hara saying um, it's it's about the muscle that we build, right? It's our ability to you know look forward, you know, five ten years and be able to predict and be able to say you know or or at least understand what are the shifts in the marketplace. It's a really important thing that we need to do. All right. Well, Andy. Cecilia, Leica, thank you all so much for your feedback and for your information. This was great. And hope you all enjoyed it. (laughs) No time for questions. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.